Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. Oh my gosh, I've missed you guys so much. I am very happy to be back. It has been pure chaos with the end of the school year, schedule changes, the birth of my nephew, my mom's upcoming surgery, but I am back and hopefully we'll be here with no further interruptions to your regularly scheduled programming. That said, I hope you all had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend and spent some great time with your families and were able to take advantage of some of the amazing deals the Palmetto State Armory had available for all of you this Memorial Day weekend. Yesterday was AK Monday, but I'm officially declaring today Saber Tuesday because I have an amazing deal for you. As of recording, there is a Saber Forge 14.5-223 Wild M4 13-inch Saber Quad Rail and Pin and Weld Silencer Company ASR Flash Hider for only $849.99. I am personally a huge fan of the Sabre series and highly encourage you to check this one out if you have a chance. A Colorado student barred from wearing a sash representing the flags of Mexico and the United States to her high school graduation did so anyway, partially covering it with another sash representing her participation in a service organization. Always stand up for what you believe in. Naomi Peña Villasano said, Peña Villasano's case is the latest dispute in the U.S. about what kind of cultural graduation attire is allowed at commencement ceremonies. Peña Villasano challenged school officials in court after they said she would be banned from graduation ceremonies if she wore the sash that has stars and stripes on one side and a cactus, eagle, and serpent to represent the Mexican flag on the other side. A federal judge had ruled Friday that the school district could in fact bar Peña Villasano from wearing the sash at graduation. However, with her flag sash partially covered with a gold key club international one, no one tried to stop Peña Villasano from crossing the stage to receive her diploma. School officials have said the policy of not allowing individual sashes at graduation was, quote, to protect the symbolic traditions that signify the graduate's academic accomplishments and services to the community. Each stole, cord, or pin worn over the graduate's gown symbolizes academic honors, school-sponsored activities, and military enlistment. The school said in a statement, The district says it will reconsider its graduation sash policies before the class of 2024 graduates next spring. Similar disputes have played out across the United States during graduation season. A biological male who identifies as transgender skipped the graduation ceremony at his Mississippi high school this year after he was banned from wearing a dress to the ceremony. In Oklahoma, a Native American graduate brought legal action against a school district for removing a feather, which is a sacred religious object, from her cap before the graduation ceremony in 2022. 
I understand that things change and cultural norms develop over time. When I graduated high school, we didn't put anything on our caps. There was a sash for National Honor Society and tassels for valedictorian, but that was it. On the one hand, I understand the school's desire for uniformity and consistency with attire, but I think the question this brings is when can the school supersede freedom of expression, speech, and religion? Do the circumstances of the student situations rise to that? We shall see as these court cases play out. I'm an absolutist, and most of you know that about me. I don't believe that a school that accepts any taxpayer funding has the right to tell you what you can or cannot wear, and certainly not to your graduation ceremony. Things are heating up in the Pacific as Japan's military has said it will destroy any North Korean missile that violates its territory and is making preparations to do so after Kim Jong-un announced to Tokyo that it plans to launch a satellite between May 31st and June 11th, Japan's chief cabinet secretary Hirokatsu Matsuno said any launch by North Korea, even if termed a satellite launch, affected the safety of Japanese citizens. The government recognizes that there is a possibility that the satellites may pass through our country's territory. Nuclear-armed North Korea says it has completed its first military spy satellite, and Kim has approved final preparations for launching it to orbit. Analysts say a military satellite would enhance North Korea's surveillance capability and improve its ability to strike targets in the event of war. It's interesting when I see countries that have and take advantage of the same capability in question, spy satellites in this case, feel so much righteous indignation when their adversaries are seeking equal footing. That's not to say that I think it would be good for North Korea to have spy satellites, but it's a bit pot calling the kettle black, if you will. Japan's defense ministry said in a statement, we will take destructive measures against ballistic and other missiles that are confirmed to land in our territory. The ministry said it would use its standard missile 3 or SM-3 or Patriot Missile Pac-3 to destroy any such North Korean missile. The Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told reporters that any North Korean missile launch would be a serious violation of a UN Security Council resolution. Quote, we strongly urge North Korea to refrain from launching, Kishida's office said, adding that it would cooperate with relevant countries such as the U.S. and South Korea. A U.S. State Department spokesperson told the South Korean news agency Yonhap that any launch involving ballistic missile technology was a violation of multiple UN Security Council resolutions. Satellite launching technology is similar to that used in ballistic missiles. Japan has said it will do all it can to collect and analyze information from the launch. In what feels like a straight-to-television movie, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko has said he'll give nuclear weapons to states willing to join Russia and Belarus. It's very simple. You have to join the union between Belarus and Russia. That's it. There will be nuclear weapons for everyone. Lukashenko said on Russian state TV, Lukashenko's out there looking like Oprah. You get a nuke, you get a nuke, you all get nukes, as long as you hate the United States. 
man's phone is going to be ringing off the hook because currently there are 195 countries in the world and only nine of them have nuclear weapons. Russia, U.S., the U.K., France, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. I think it's possible, Lukashenko said, noting that he was expressing his personal view. We need to strategically understand that we have a unique chance to unite. The comments come after the Belarusian leader and Russian President Vladimir Putin last week went ahead with a deal to deploy Moscow's tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus as Russia continues its invasion of Ukraine. The move of the weapons, which Putin announced earlier this year, has been interpreted by some as a warning to NATO. The Russian president has repeatedly threatened nuclear weapon use amid its ongoing war. Don't worry about nuclear weapons. We are responsible for this. These are serious issues. Everything will be all right here, Lukashenko said to Russian state news agency Belta. Belarus and Russia formed their union state partnership in 1999. The Texas House of Representatives on Monday delivered articles of impeachment against Attorney General Ken Paxton to the state Senate. The delivery came after the GOP-led House named the Board of Managers, comprising five Democrats and seven Republicans, who will oversee the impeachment proceedings. Representative Andrew Murr, who is a Republican, is leading the board. The House approved 20 articles of impeachment on sweeping allegations of wrongdoing against Paxton that have trailed the state's top lawyer for years, including abuse of office, bribery. The vote immediately suspended Paxton from office. Among those who opposed the impeachment was State Rep. Brian Harrison. He argued that House leadership made no attempt to adequately document Paxton's guilt, nor to demonstrate that this is anything other than a sham railroading of a political enemy. The House needed just a simple majority of its 149 members to impeach Paxton, and the final 121-23 vote was a landslide. But the threshold for conviction in the Senate trial is higher, requiring a two-thirds majority of its 31 members. If that happens, Paxton would be permanently barred from holding office in Texas. Anything less means Paxton is acquitted and can resume his third term as attorney general. Later Monday, the Senate unanimously adopted a measure that called for the trial to begin no later than August 28th. Paxton bitterly criticized the chamber's investigation as corrupt, secret, and conducted so quickly that he and his lawyers were not allowed to mount a defense. He also called Republican House Speaker Dade and conducted, or, I'm sorry, a liberal, and after an internal investigation, the OAG retained an outside law firm to further investigate, which culminated in a report. The OAG offered it to the House, but they refused, the Attorney General's office said. The impeachment charges include bribery related to one of Paxton's donors, Austin real estate developer Nate Paul, allegedly employing the woman with whom he had an extramarital affair in exchange for legal help. Another Republican senator with a potential conflict is Senator Brian Hughes. The House impeachment articles accuse Paxton of using Hughes 
as a straw requester for a legal opinion used to protect Paul from foreclosure on several properties. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is expected to set a trial date in the Senate and name committee members to establish rules that will govern the impeachment proceedings. The Senate will ultimately decide whether Paxton stays in office. Patrick, who is president of the Senate, will preside as judge. I always hate when I see something like this because it just showcases how broken our political system and the people that inhabit it are. Paxton is probably guilty of these charges, but so is damn near every other politician who uses their position of influence for fortune or favor for themselves, family, or friends. It's gross, and I'm sick of the political enrichment class. Bluffs calling bluffs and greasy palms sliding for backroom deals. It was announced this week that McCarthy and House Republicans have an agreement in principle on a deal to raise the debt ceiling for two years and cap spending. The agreement was reached by Biden and McCarthy during a phone call on Saturday. Now, both leaders face the task of selling their deal to their allies in both chambers. The deal must be passed before June 5th, which is the crucial date that Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. will no longer be able to pay its bills. Have you ever seen when a boxing match accidentally leaks the results of the fight before the fight actually occurs? This arbitrary June 5th deadline is kind of like that. A deal will be reached, but all this back-and-forth silliness is theatrics and fanfare to exhaust the people from paying attention. If the deal ends up passing through Congress and being signed into law by Biden before that so-called X date, the White House and White and House Republicans will have avoided an unprecedented economic crisis. A default by the U.S. government, which has never happened, could spark a global recession and the loss of millions of jobs, a scenario that loomed over a last-minute rush of holiday weekend negotiations. The two-year deal would also push the next fight over raising the debt ceiling until after the 2024 elections. Politicians passing the buck and protecting their re-election prospects? Say it isn't so. I'm just so surprised, and I never saw this coming, said no one who's paying attention. Despite the deal in principle, new issues could easily crop up each step along the way, and each step has the potential to be time-consuming, running out the clock ahead of the debt limit deadline early next month. Stiff opposition is expected from both the left and the right. That means it's going to require an intense whipping operation and support from both sides of the aisle to get the bill over the finish line. The agreement, in principle, will lift the debt limit for two years and roughly cap non-defense spending to current fiscal year levels for 2024 and increase it by 1% in fiscal year 2025, according to a source familiar with the negotiations. As part of the deal, the White House has also appeared to have made concessions to House Republican negotiators on work requirements for people receiving food stamps. McCarthy told reporters Saturday evening that he expects the House to vote on Wednesday on the agreement reached with the White House. McCarthy said negotiators will continue working Saturday night to write the legislative text and that he expects to speak with Biden again on Sunday afternoon 
before the final legislative text is posted on Sunday. Doesn't that make you guys feel just the smallest amount disgusting that the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House of Representatives together, the two of them, made these decisions and that legislation is being whipped up into text to be voted on this week? Just two people for the entire country decisions as far as the financial decisions for our budget. Two people. One of them is Joe Biden. I just let that sink in for a moment. House Republicans circulated a fact sheet of the details of the debt limit agreement to House and Senate Republicans Saturday night after announcing the deal, according to two sources with direct knowledge of the document. Who those sources are, you and I will never know. And whether or not the document's real, we also will never know. Apparently, this fact sheet says that the agreement will cut spending year over year and set a 1% top-line number for the next six years at 1% growth. It also includes SNAP and TANF work requirements. The bill will include an administrative pay-as-you-go provision to require that Biden finds offsets for rules and regulations that increase federal spending. It would slash the fiscal year 2023 funding request for new IRS agents and claw back tens of billions in unspent funds that were meant to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. I look forward to that fucking tax refund to all of us who footed the bill for that. Um, January 6th rioters are raking in thousands in donations, but now the U.S. government is coming after their haul. Less than two months after he pleaded guilty to storming the U.S. Capitol, Texas resident Daniel Goodwin appeared on Tucker Carlson's news show and promoted a website where supporters could donate money to Goodwin and other rioters from the site called Political Prisoners. The Justice Department now wants Goodwin to give up more than the $25,000 that he raised, a clawback that is part of a growing effort by the government to prevent rioters from being able to personally profit from participating in the attack that shook the foundations of American democracy. Oh my God. The way that they write about this, you guys, wears me. Uh, prosecutors in the more than, I'm trying not to cuss as much, by the way, Um, prosecutors in the more than 1,000 criminal cases from January 6th are increasingly asking judges to impose fines on top of prison sentences to offset donations from supporters of the Capitol rioters, not for any other reason than to take away the donations that have come to those individuals. (sighs) Dozens of defendants have set up online fundraising appeals for help with legal fees, and prosecutors acknowledge there's nothing wrong with asking for help for attorney expenses. But the Justice Department has, in some cases, questioned where the money is really going, because many of those charged have had government-funded legal representation. I'm so sorry, This situation is anything but funny, but private federal attorneys aren't even close to being inexpensive. And frankly, 
$25,000 is going to get you through maybe, maybe three months of billable hours. And these people have been locked up and prevented from earning an income. If they have houses, those mortgages don't stop just because daddy government gets a hair up their ass to put you behind bars. What if they have families that depended on their income? The money they are raising is likely going to expenses keeping their lives afloat outside of the gulag. Most of the fundraising efforts appear on Give, Send, Go, which bills itself as the, quote, number one free Christian fundraising site and has become a haven for January 6th defendants barred from using mainstream crowdfunding sites, including GoFundMe, to raise money. Well, I mean, after we saw what happened with the Canadian truckers and GoFundMe, I can't imagine why you think that anything different would happen with these individuals. Isn't it crazy they just typed that up here as if GoFundMe didn't support the raising of funds for those who burned cities to the ground and ruined the lives of thousands of people so that they could have bail money? But petitioning the government of your grievances in their safe haven results in a total banishment from the ability to fundraise for your defense or your livelihood. The rioters often proclaim their innocence and portray themselves as victims of government oppression, even as they cut deals to plead guilty and cooperate with prosecutors. Well, that's a bit disingenuous, don't you think? Why would an innocent man cut a deal to plead guilty? Uh, because that docket needs cleaned. Those government-funded attorneys are not interested in fighting to a jury trial where they aren't going to get a fair shake under the full weight of the federal government, so they advise for their clients to just take the deal. This article is gross, by the way. Um, Their fundraising success suggests that many people in the United States still view January 6th rioters as patriots and cling to the baseless belief the Democrats stole the 2020 presidential election from Donald Trump. Uh, the former president himself has fueled the idea, pledging to pardon rioters if he is elected. Uh, we don't think that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. We think it was stolen from the American people. Federal election laws were violated by states that offered mail-in, non-absentee ballot voting without going through their state legislatures. It's changed by the executive and judiciary branches. That's a fact. That isn't an emotional feeling. That isn't a conspiracy theory. It happened in numerous states. It's not a baseless belief that the election was stolen because it was. Marcus Mount, and I'm not even, it's like, I'm not even like a Trump person. I, I, I hope that he doesn't even make it through the primary, to be honest with you. But this notion that just because you think that there was something illegal that went on, like, it's not a thought. It did happen. Anyway, Marcus Malley, a Virginia man scheduled to be sentenced next month for assaulting police at the Capitol, raised more than $16,000 from an online campaign that described him as a, quote, January 6th POW and asked for money for his family. Prosecutors have requested a $16,000 fine, noting that Malley had a public defender and did not owe any legal fees. 
he should not be able to use his notoriety gained in the commission of his crimes to capitalize on his participation in the capital breach in this way. So far this year, prosecutors have sought more than $390,000 in fines against at least 21 riot defendants, in amounts ranging from $450 to more than $71,000. Judges have imposed at least $124,127 in fines against 33 riot defendants this year. In the previous two years, Judges ordered more than 100 riot defendants to collectively pay more than $240,000 in fines. Russia's Interior Ministry on Monday issued an arrest warrant for Senator Lindsey Graham following his comments related to the fighting in Ukraine. In an edited video of his meeting Friday with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky that was released by Zelensky's office, Graham said, quote, the Russians are dying and described the U.S. military assistance to the country as, quote, the best money we've ever spent. While Graham appeared to have made the remarks in different parts of the conversation, the short video by Ukraine's presidential office put them next to each other, causing outrage in Russia. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Sunday that it's hard to imagine a greater shame for the country than having such senators. The investigative committee, the country's top criminal investigation agency, has moved to open a criminal inquiry against Graham, and the Interior Ministry followed up by issuing a warrant for his arrest as indicated Monday by its official record of wanted criminal suspects. Russia can have him. We don't even want him. That is your Tuesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. It's great to be back with you, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Take care. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.